So split kingdom. Um, in the north, Israel. And in the, that's what we traced through last week. And in the south, Judah. So Judah is the, the kingdom ruled over by um, the Davidic line uh, with Jerusalem, the temple, and so on. So last week we looked at Israel. This week it's Judah. And so if you like, we're turning back the clock and getting going uh, again. And on the whole, although this spirals down as we'll see, on the whole, the south fares better than the north. Certainly they survive uh, longer. Uh, We'll pick up the story of the the south, Judah, sort of at the time that um, the north falls. So the north falls during the reign of a king called Hezekiah in the south. Uh, And Hezekiah is a a king who listens to God's word. He, He has the prophets Isaiah and Micah. Uh, preach to him and, he, and basically he listens um, so come with me to, to 2 Kings 18 because I want to get you doing a discussion pretty much straight away um, there's Hezekiah 2 Kings 18 and he's compared to David uh, verse 5 he Hezekiah trusted the Lord the God of Israel so there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him nor among those who were before him so he's, he's a kind of high point if you compared to David that's a really good thing if you're compared to um, Ahab or something like that that's a really bad thing uh, and so although Assyria, the, the empire that conquered Israel, the, uh, the height of their powers, Judah in the south stay strong under King Hezekiah. And the Assyrians do come to attack the south. And that's what I want you to look at in groups. So have a read around the tables, uh, 2 Kings 18, um, 28 to 35. And you'll see that basically this commander, depending on your translation, he might be called the Rabshakeh, but he's, the, he's basically the leader of the Assyrian army. He comes, besieges um, Jerusalem. And he, he kind of, essentially preaches at them. So I just want, to have, want you to have a read of that passage um, and then try and think about what he's trying to do. Kind of what arguments is the commander of this evil empire using to appeal to God's people? And what, how would you describe what he's trying to do? And then think, basically, what, if the commander was shouting through the window this morning, what kind of arguments would he be shouting at us? Okay, what is the kind of pattern of what he's trying to do? Have a read of the passage. Hopefully that'll make more sense. Give us a shout if not. Round tables, let, let's go through it. Okay, um, let's come back together. So here's his commander. He's, he's threatening Judah, threatening King Hezekiah. And um, what, what essentially is he doing? As he shouts, shouts over the wall, what, what, yeah, what's he up to? Non-rhetorical question. What, what's he up to? <laughs> Okay, so definitely he's trying to give, convince them to give in, to surrender. Um, sort, of, sort of how? And, yeah, thank you. Okay, yeah, great. So he's appealing to them, you know, and actually... Even the language is the language of God's promise, isn't it? You know, that, um, I'll just turn over too many pages, but um, each of you will, you know, make your peace with me. Come and find peace with me. I'm the one who can bring peace. Then you'll sit under your own vine. Then you'll have your own water. Um, I will take you away to a land of grain and wine and bread and vineyards, a land of olives and honey, a land where you'll live. Okay, if I just cut those verses out of the Bible and put them on your sheets with no reference you'd be forgiven for thinking that's God speaking hey that literally happened on our table like, 
Uh, that literally happened on your table. Okay. As in one person just arrived late. I wouldn't say who it was. Yeah. No. <laughs> could, could, could be anyone about 40 people. Um, for, we're, like, oh, we're, we're coming back to that. We, um, we just went to Stinhead concert and just yeah. thought of reading a prophet. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He's evangelising them. But he's evangelising in the name of Syria, not the Lord God. Um, and he, you get the same thing in Isaiah, similar incident. It's a pattern in the book of Revelation a lot too. Whether the, the enemy's tactics or the devil's tactics is not, it's, it's not just to terrify us, um, although there is, there is that too, but, but just to, um, to evangelise us um, with a different gospel. It's what he did in Eden, isn't it? You won't die, no need to worry. You'll be like God. It'll be better for you if you go this way. So hence the question at the end. We won't, I mean, hopefully you've thought of some things, but you know, if, the, if the commander was outside the, the window shouting in this morning during our, our morning service, he'd be shouting, no, no, look, you, you'll be much happier if you leave this stuff behind. Actually, just uh, you'll find peace by following your heart, your, your heart's desires. You'll find peace by, by just being kind to yourself and, 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 and sleeping in on a Sunday morning. That's how you'll find peace. You'll find, pe- and, you know, find peace, that guy, who, that guy who really loves you even though he's not a, not a Christian. He, that's how you're going to have a, a happy life. Um, it's always offering something better, sort of distorting the, the gospel. It's a counterfeit gospel. Okay, um, let's, let's trace the rest of the story through um, in the rest of our time. Um, there's Hezekiah. Hezekiah stays strong on the whole. We're not going to follow every twist and turn of his life just for the sake of um, getting through the, uh, the whole of Judah's history. He has a son, and that's Manasseh. Now, Manasseh is bad news. Um, come on to, to 2 Kings 21. Manasseh is, is Hezekiah's son. He's 12 years old, we read, when he begins to reign. He reigns for 55 years. It's a long time, half a century. Verse 2, he of chapter 21 of 2 Kings, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, female goddess, as Ahab king of Israel had done. And worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. In other words, in the temple. Verse 6. And he burned his son as an offering. And used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Manasseh is a disaster. His name actually means forgetful. And that, that is what he does. He forgets the Lord. And basically he acts like the nations that have been driven out, like the Canaanites. Remember, the Canaanites were driven out of the land for worshipping Baal and Asherah and false gods, for sacrificing their own children. And that's exactly what he comes and does. This um, son of David, what are we on, great-grandson, great-great-grandson might be, uh, of David, is setting up shrines to false gods, even in the temple. He offers his own son as a human sacrifice, just like the Amorites had. And he's the only king in the south who's ever compared to Ahab if you were here last week remember Ahab was the kind of wickedest of the kings in the north um, married to Jezebel that, that Ahab and in verse 3 we read that this king this Davidic king is like Ahab and therefore unsurprisingly when you canonise the land when you turn it back to what it was beforehand God is going to do to you what he used you to do to the Canaanites in other words drive you out <coughs> And so verse, uh, verse 10, 
the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such a disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I'll stretch over Jerusalem, the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I'll forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to their enemies. Um, judgment is going to come, just as the, the, the covenant warned, the Mosaic covenant warned four or five weeks back. Uh, because of this re-Canaanizing turning away from the Lord and to these false gods. Uh, and so from that moment onward, there, there's going to be no escape. God has said judgment will fall. It's a bit like in, in the Garden of Eden when God says, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Um, there's, no, there's no winding back the words. God's not going to say, okay, and judgment must fall. But as it turns out, um, some of the kings who follow Manasseh are better. Um, his direct son, Ahab, only lasts two years, so we don't get much about that. Um, sorry, not his son, Am- Ammon, not Ahab. I've read that wrong. Um, Ammon only lasts two years, um, so nothing much to say about him. But his grandson, Josiah, is a godly king. 2 Kings 22, we're on to you now. He is a king like David. Uh, verse 2, he did what's right in the eyes of the Lord. He walks in the ways of David, his father, didn't turn aside to the right or the left. And he, he tries to push Judah back onto the right line. So you'll see there, even just the titles, he, um, he repairs the temple, he sorts the, the temple out. It's restored, it's cleansed. Um, whilst they're doing that, they find the book of the law, verse 8 of chapter 22. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law. I bet I found the Bible. Look at this, uh, in the temple. And he gives it to, to Shaphan the secretary, and, 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 and the secretary reads it, and he goes to the king and says, whew, you want to have a read of this? Um, and so Josiah reads it, and there's, there's basically a bit of a revival. They turn back um, to the Lord. They celebrate Passover the first time in ages. And therefore, God, God pauses judgment. So verse 17. Because they have forsaken me, this is God talking about Judah in the previous reign. Because they've forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, they might provoke us to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place. It will not be quenched. But says God to the prophet, to the king of Judah, it's Josiah, who sent you to inquire of you, of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words you've heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you've torn your clothes wet before me, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I'll bring on this place. So because Josiah turns back, the Lord holds his hand. It stays his hand, doesn't bring judgment. Uh, so Josiah, died, he actually dies in battle, um, but he dies without the kind of judgment that God has prophesied falling on the kingdom. And it's after Josiah, that is it basically. Josiah is the, the last sort of decent king. After that, um, everything gets uh, messy. Uh, and so we're over the page on your sheets if, you, if you're following along. Um, we have a string of kings, confusingly, who keep getting given different names, just to really throw you, um, who, who basically hasten the demise, the fall of Judah. Um, so you start with this guy, 
you'll see I put a family tree on there. We start with Josiah's oldest son, a guy called Jehoaz. And he briefly reigns, but he's captured by a pharaoh, by Egyptian pharaoh. And the pharaoh says, look, um, you're off the scene now. I'm going to put your brother as king. Um, so Jehoaz's little brother, Jehoiakim, becomes king. Uh, we're in 2 Kings uh, 24 now. Or the end of chapter 23, actually. Jehoiakim uh, is made king of Israel. Oh, sorry, of Judah. But he does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he tries to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. 24 verse 7. Um, the king of Egypt did not come out of his land. For the king of Babylon had taken over. Babylon has become the world, the world empire at this stage. And um, this king, Jehoiakim, thinks, well, I'll, 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 um, I'll rebel. I'll, I'll try and sort of create an independent Judah again without an overlord of, of Babylon. Um, but it's not going to work. Uh, he dies. His son, Jehoiachin, is crowned. And again, he does evil. 24 verse 9. He does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Jehoiachin, 18 years old. He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. And again, this is where the story twists and turns. But during Jehoiachin's uh, reign, to give it a very English pronunciation, uh, verse 10 of chapter 24. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, so he's the emperor, came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother, his servants, his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people in the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin, the king, to Babylon. The king's mother, his wives, his officials, wives plural, see that's not a good sign. His officials, the chief men of the land, he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captives uh, to Babylon, all the men of valour, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers. And verse 17, the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place. And then changed his name uh, to confuse Bible readers uh, for centuries afterwards, changed his name to Zedekiah. So I've sort of summarised it there on uh, the sheet. Uh, in verses, chapter 24, verses 10 to 15, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians take the king into captivity. They raid the temple and steal the stuff. They haven't destroyed it, but they kind of ruin it. They trash it. Uh, and verse 14, they take thousands into exile. And they basically take anyone who's any use to them. So the rulers, the wise men, the soldiers, the craftsmen. And they leave in the land just the poorest of the poor. The people who aren't going to cause any trouble, aren't of any use to the empire. So the country isn't emptied, but it is, it's almost had its sort of, um, head chopped off, as it were. King, all the, uh, all the leaders. But the king is still alive. Hold, hold on to that, because he's, he's going to reappear. He's still alive, just stuck in exile. And his uncle, who's the third son of Josiah, is now on the throne. So you, at this stage, it kind of could go, almost go either way. Maybe the new king is going to save Judah. Maybe, maybe there's a chance of revival. But Zedekiah, verse 18, uh, 
when he was 21 years old, Zedekiah became king. He reigned 11 years. His mother's name was something. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had did. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Zedekiah, who's been installed by Nebuchadnezzar, by the king of Babylon, decides, I'm going to make a bid for freedom. I'm going to break free. Okay, so it's like it's his Nicholas Sturgeon moment. We're going to get independence. Um, and it goes badly wrong. And so the Lord drives Judah from his presence. So chapter 25 of two kings is um, the, the lowest of the low. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is not happy with this. So he comes up, verse 1, out of Babylon with his army against Jerusalem and lays siege to it. Uh, verse 3, on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city. They all flee. Verse 6, they capture the king. The Babylonians capture the king and brought him up to the king uh, in Babylon. Verse 7, they slaughter the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, um, stick out Zedekiah's eyes, bind him and take him off into exile. And this time, they don't want to leave any chance of, of Judah rebelling again, Jerusalem rebelling again. So in the fifth month, verse 8, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, um, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord, temple destroyed, the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, so the city and the palace destroyed. Every great house he burned down. The city is razed to the ground. Uh, they break down all the walls around Jerusalem. Verse 11, the rest of the people who were left in the city and the, and the deserters who deserted the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar took into exile. But again, he leaves some of the poorest men to be farmers, plowmen and vine dressers. And then we get a description of him just trashing the rest of the temple, destroying everything. So the king's in exile, the temple is destroyed. This is about 587, 586 BC. The city is destroyed and even more people are taken into exile. Put a little map, I don't know whose it is, it's not mine. Stolen off the internet. Um, showing the, the, the exiles. Um, the red one is um, uh, the only one that goes back the other way. So bringing Gentiles back into the land uh, in the north. But the other two heading out, you'll see Assyria to the east and Babylon to the east. It's significant, isn't it, that when God's people go to exile, which way do they go? They go east. Same pattern we've seen throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve get kicked out of Eden and they're sent east. So that, um, when they come into the land from Egypt, you see where Egypt is, bottom left. God sends them on this circuitous route to come round and in from the east to head west, symbolically going back towards him. Now they've been kicked out of the land, driven away into exile in the east, away from the Lord's presence. And so the, the book of Kings ends, well, ends on a near disaster. The empire has struck back. Okay? It, it, little Judah tried to rebel, but, but Babylon comes and crushes them. God's people are in exile. The land and Jerusalem are destroyed. The temple's in ruins. Therefore, he's, you know, that is the, the place of his presence, destroyed. But there's just a glimmer of hope right at the end. Uh, if you come to... Uh, at the very end of the book, how two kings ends. Uh, verse 27 of chapter 25. And in the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th year of the month, evil Merodach, that's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son. What a great name. Oh, it's a boy. What do you want to call him, love? Uh, evil Merodach. Love it. Um, in that year that he began to reign, he graciously freed Jehoiachin. Remember him? He was the, the son of Josiah, the first... Um, 
sorry, the grandson of Josiah, uh, one of the kings who was taken into exile, he frees him. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a, gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Babylon have conquered, the Babylonians have conquered loads of empires, loads of countries, and the, the, the Judaite king is kind of raised up above them. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. Jehoiachin is released about 561 BC by Nebuchadnezzar's son. He stays in exile, but he is at least alive. And oil is provided for him, food is provided for him, verse 30, day by day. Fascinatingly, archaeologists have found the receipts for that. Um, like on stone, obviously. Um, they just, they've dug them up. Um, I couldn't quite put the photo on because it doesn't, like, it doesn't mean much because I can't read Babylonian or whatever they spoke. But um, they've got these little receipts that say, you know, the allowance for um, the king of Judah, three, three pots of oil or whatever it is. Um, so, again, just more confirmation that the, the Bible story and history are uh, the same story. And therefore, the, the book ends just with a glimmer of hope. David's line still lives. Remember God promised to Samuel, one of your kings will be on the throne forever. That Davidic line still exists. They've not been totally butchered and wiped out. And this obviously is the line of Jesus. And there's a little bit of hope too in the prophets. Now, we're not going to look at the prophets loads. Um, We're going to pick up this series after Easter. Um, But just let's take a sneak, sneak peek at one of them. Book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was living during this time. Um, he's taken out of Israel into exile, or out of Judah into exile. He's deported. Ezekiel 10. So although he's not in Judah, seeing Jerusalem, he gets a vision of what's happening, particularly the fall of the temple. So lots of the early chapters of Ezekiel are about the fall of the temple, the destruction of the temple. And Ezekiel's visions are weird and wonderful. But in chapter 10, we... We see, or rather Ezekiel sees, the Lord's glory chariot, this strange sort of manifestation of his presence with the four-faced animals and the spinning wheels and everything. It gets up. Um, Where should we pick it up? Verse 9. I looked and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherub. So he's seeing the, the glory of the Lord, one beside each cherub. As for their appearance, they had the same likeness as if a wheel were within a wheel. It's this strange chariot that God is riding on. They went in every direction, turning where they went. Verse 15. The cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures I saw. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. Okay, so the cherubim are driving this chariot. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. The glory leaves the temple. And stood over the cherubim. Okay, he gets onto his chariot with his strange wheels turning every direction. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth. Okay, so they've come to take the Lord away. Before my eyes as they went out. And they st- stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So the cherubim, these strange creatures in this sort of incredible chariot thing. They come and, as it were, God climbs into his chariot. Comes up out of the temple and starts heading east. Um, is that good news or bad news? Good news or bad news? Well, in one sense, of course, it's bad news. God's presence leaving the temple. Do you remember we saw at the end of the book of Exodus, the glory cloud fills the tabernacle and everyone rejoices. We saw in Solomon, when the temple is built, the glory cloud filled, God moves in. 
fills the temple, everyone rejoices. So the fact that God is leaving is bad news. And the temple is then destroyed, as we saw. But there's a hint of hope. There's a hint of hope just in the direction. Which way is God going? There's no wasted details. Why does uh, Ezekiel tell us that the, the chariot starts moving east? He's going towards exactly. He's going towards his people. He's going towards his people. So he, he, he's, he is leaving Jerusalem, the temple. Which of course, is a bad thing. But he's not disappearing off to Europe or something. He's heading into exile with his people. And so... The, the story of, of Israel and Judah, as it were, ends with a glimmer of hope. The Davidic king is still alive. The, the, the promise uh, of 2 Samuel still stands. Uh, there'll be some hope from the fact that God is headed into exile with his people. That's prophetic, ultimately, of Jesus, who heads into the ultimate exile, goes on to is cut off, ultimately, on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because God himself goes into exile, is cast out, for us that we have hope of being restored to the glory uh, the promised land of heaven and also just big picture that the, the book of kings and the story of israel tells us that hope is is not going to be found in avoiding judgment but in going through judgment and coming out the other side israel god's people they have to die in order to then be raised and there be new life and hope their hope is not found in avoiding judgment but in going through it and coming out the other side, the death and the resurrection of Israel. Um, and again, obviously there's all sorts of gospel patterns uh, you can pick up uh, f- uh, from that. For Jesus, it is not avoiding the curse, but going through the curse that leads to our salvation. For us, we cannot avoid judgment. Your sins will be punished, either in Christ or in you. But trust in Christ, then your hope is being united to Christ who has gone through death and has risen again. There's no avoiding the curse, but it can be paid for by the God who will go into exile, be cut off for us. Uh, we're going to stop there. Let me just explain. So next week, I'm away next week, um, preaching another IPC church. Um, we're going to have a one-off session on um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Okay, he's a great figure in, in church history. Peter Wood is going to be teaching that. Um, find out more next week. Uh, we're then going to pause Sunday school for, a, I can't remember if it's two or three weeks over Easter, we'll make sure it's clear on the um, uh, on the email um, and so we, in many ways we, we've left the story at the low point we've buried Israel and then after, after Easter uh, we'll pick it back up and see the resurrection of God's people and obviously um, the climax of the story of the New Testament so we'll, pick, we'll have another I'm quite sure how many weeks about three weeks probably, maybe three or four weeks finishing off the rest of the Bible story after Easter but there'll be a pause in between let me pray and then we'll go and get sorted Our Father, we confess there is no escaping judgment for us, uh, that your words are, are right and true. Uh, we are sinners, and the wage of sin is death. And so we praise you that the Lord Jesus is willing to be cut off for us, um, to go into exile, uh, to be forsaken in order that we might not be ultimately. And we pray that we would know, therefore, that the way to, to heaven, to glory, lies through the cross and the cross alone. And we thank you that every a drop of your anger at your people was poured out on him instead of us. And so therefore we can be safe. And so even as we face death, ultimately we pray that we would do so knowing that um, uh, even though we die, we will live. Uh, bless us with that certain hope we ask. 
and strengthen it this morning as we gather to worship. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.